We come once again in our studies of the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 3. And so I invite you once again to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. want to read from Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. This records what happens after Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the voice, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God said to Adam, or he called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then we read in the following verses of the punishment that will come upon the woman. She will give painful childbirth, and upon the man his labors will be with toil and with great pain. And then we read, in verse 20, and here's our text, verses 20 and 21. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now in order that we might have help in understanding these precious words, once again, let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us this very condensed account of that which took place at the beginning of time. And we pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to understand these things, that we would understand that which you would have us to understand, that we might apply them to our hearts and our lives, and that we might walk before you in a way that pleases you, and that we might be driven to put our trust not in our own selves, but in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his righteousness, as we just sang. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The great thinker and preacher A.W. Tozer once made this perceptive remark. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from our moral and spiritual disorders. But it must also be said that he came to deliver us from our own remedies. And the underlying truth of Tozer's observation is that salvation is all of God. 
All of mankind can be divided up into two different camps. Those who in any way look to themselves for their remedies, which Tozer speaks about, the remedies of their disorders. And on the other hand, those who look to God alone for the remedy of their disorders. In the most extreme segment of those that look to themselves includes those that believe that there is no God. Everything's up to us. And that's why people panic about the climate and so on. We have, to, we have to save the planet, they think. And so all of society's orders, saving we've we got to save ourselves from that. We've got to remedy our personal disorders. And so there are people that don't believe in God and they think it's all up to them to fix these things all up, therefore. But there are also many that believe in God that to one degree or another look to themselves to remedy their disorders, as Tozer puts it. And in his masterful book, The Plan of Salvation, the great theologian B.B. Warfield has set this forth in a masterful fashion. He demonstrates that every system, every religion, can be evaluated by the degree to which it embraces one of two extremes, either autosoterism, that is self-salvation, looking to yourself to, to save yourself, or theosoterism, which is god ordained and looking to God for salvation. And the most extreme form of autosoterism, remember automobile, self-mobility, this is self-salvation. The most extreme form, they're naturalistic in their orientation. People believe in God, perhaps, but they completely look to natural causes rather than supernatural causes to to get them out of their fix. And for instance, Pelagians, they fit into the category of extreme naturalism. They believe that man is not still, he's not inclined towards sin and he, can, he has the total ability to be able to straighten himself out and make himself pleasing to God. And then between that extreme and the extreme of those that trust in God alone are people that mix it all up together in one, one way or another. They mix naturalism with supernaturalism, for instance. And for instance, there are people that look to the sacraments and the priest, he says the right things and the sacraments are given and so what man has performed and then we use that and this is our way to God. It's a mixture, you see, between self-salvation and God's salvation. And among these that mix it up are Arminians. They teach that we have to be saved, yes, by God, Christ, but it's up to us to get the ball rolling by our free will. And the most consistent form of theosoterism or, or, or a God works salvation, it stresses that it is God alone that saves, and that He not only provides salvation through Christ, but He also sovereignly works in the hearts of people that will be saved to draw them unto Himself. It is all of God, and all the glory therefore belongs to God. And my point in bringing all this up, and you can read Warfield's book, it's much more detailed than what I've just given you in a couple minutes here. My whole point in summarizing this is to show you that right from the start, right after man fell into sin, God steps in to save sinners, and that salvation is all of God. And so here in Genesis 3, we already see the truth of Tozer's observation. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from our moral and spiritual disorders. 
But it must also be said, he adds, that he came to deliver us from our own remedies. And here we see in this passage some remedies that were wrong from which they have to be delivered. Now in verse 7, and this is why we backed up to read that verse, we have the epitome of these man-made remedies. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, we read, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And then what do we read? And they turned to God for grace that they might be forgiven. Is that what we read? No. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Immediately after they sinned, conscience was at work. It told them that they had sinned. And in their folly, they thought that they could hide their sins from the all-seeing eye of God by just taking some fig leaves and stitching them together as coverings. And in the following verses, we also see how they tried to cover their sins by their flimsy excuses. And these excuses are then followed by several curses announced by God. But wonder of wonders, the very first curse which came upon the devil, in it was couched a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. There was going to come from the woman eventually a seed, a champion. And through this one, the serpent will be defeated and crushed. And so right before God even gets to the consequences to for Adam and Eve, the things they will experience, he gives them a gospel promise. And now we see how this gospel is received. And we see in the verses that we're going to study this morning what it provides. In verse 20, we see how this gospel is received, namely by faith. And then in verse 21, we see what this gospel includes. It is God's provision. I want you to look with me, first of all, at Adam's faith. And we read of this in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And here we see how Adam expresses his faith and God's promise of a Savior, first given back in verse 15, where God promised to Satan that his vanquisher would be born through a woman. Now you remember that one of the ways that Adam exercised lordship over the creatures was that he named them. And God brought, you remember, the living creatures before him one by one to see what Adam would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name, chapter 2 and verse 19. And yet Adam had not yet given a name for his wife. Now this whole relationship between man and husband was all out of order because of what took place by sin. And now it's being restored. Hearing God's promise that through her the Savior would come, he knew right away what name he ought to give to that woman. Adam called his wife's name, we read, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Verse 20. He believed God's promise about the, the woman, and he gave his wife the name that signified faith in the Messiah that would soon be, eventually would be born through her. Now here in verse 20, the name Adam that gives to her, he gives her the name Eve, Hawa. It's connected with living or life, or high, the Hebrew word. And the history of this word, it's complicated, and suffices to say that Eve means life or life giver. 
And Adam gives you her, her name, you see, that signifies the specific character of her being. She will be the mother of all human life. Nobody ever was born into the world apart from Eve being the great-great-grandmother of everyone that's born. She's the mother of all human life. And he knew that this wife's pain and childbearing, it meant that people were going to follow. And he also knew that from among these people, in this seed, one would arise that would crush the head of the serpent. And he was going to come through her. He sees this. And notice with me the tense of the verb. It's very significant. Now we would expect Adam saying to say this. She will be the mother of all living. Instead, he uses the Hebrew perfect tense. It's the past tense. And Hebrew scholars, they make a case for this. In other words, we would translate the past tense. She was the mother of all living. But they see this as an example of the prophetic perfect. It looks to the future, but is so certain of that future that it says it's as if it's already done. That's the picture that's given in the, the, the tense that is used here. And this is a remarkable expression of faith. God has threatened death. And she was, you might say, Adam's, Adam's thought, she brought me death. She's a death giver, but not the death giver now in his mindset. He goes on to see that even though they now have a living death and there will last be ultimate death, in the midst of the first taste of death, there is this promise of life and hope. And this is what the gospel brings, light in the midst of darkness, life in the midst of death, blessing in the midst of cursing. And ultimately, the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve, it would be fulfilled at Calvary. And as we look at Calvary, the place of the curse, the place of darkness and death and damnation, we discover that God has transformed it into a place of blessing and light and life and glory. And through the seed of the woman came that seed par excellence, who through death achieved life and immortality. And so in the highest sense of the word, therefore, Eve became the mother of all living, not just of natural life, but through Jesus, ultimately of spiritual and everlasting life. Now, obviously, Adam couldn't see all the details that I have sketched out before you. He, she couldn't, he couldn't see how this would all be accomplished. But in giving his wife this name, he expressed his faith in God's promise, not only of a vast number of living ones that would come from his, from his wife, but also of that seed that would crush the serpent's head. And the serpent who introduced death, he would be vanquished. And out of death would come life. And so here in Adam's naming of his wife, we have a remarkable example of faith and in particular of salvation through faith. Now, with respect to saving faith, there are three features that I want you to notice with me, and they are pointed out in a wonderful way by Mr. Phillips' commentary on this, pa on this passage. First of all, notice with me that faith comes through God's word. Now, both in the Westminster Confession of Faith and also in our Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, the chapter on saving faith begins with these words. The grace of faith 
whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And then notice these words, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. Faith comes through the ministry of the word. It results from God's work in us by the Holy Spirit by means of the word. How did Adam come to believe the gospel in such a way that he named his, his wife in its honor? That she was going to be the mother of life? The answer is that God's word to Satan foretold a savior. And Adam and Eve's faith, you see, was generated as they heard that promise, that word that came from God. And it was God's spirit that worked in their hearts to give them at least a feeble understanding of the fact that it would be fulfilled. And this sets a precedent which is repeatedly confirmed throughout the rest of Scripture. Peter explained, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, 1 Peter 1.23. Paul reinforces this. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. Now this means, dear people, that if we want to be used by God in the conversion of sinners... As pastors, we need to preach the word. As people, we need to be witnesses and conveyors of the truths of God's word. Now, when I went to Bible college, many years ago now, I have to say, it was around 50 years ago, hard, hard to believe. But I can remember the names of two people, still to this day, because they made a deep impression on me. And I took a course on personal evangelism. It was taught by a godly man, Samuel Toloyan, whom I greatly respected, his love for Christ, his love for the lost. And the most useful thing that I got out of that course was not all the things that we need to say and how we need to approach people and so forth to give them the gospel. The most useful thing that I got out of the course is that we had to learn 120 Bible verses and write them out on, on exams when exams would come. And many of these verses have stuck with me to this day. Verses that are useful in conveying the gospel to sinners. And a godly fellow student, and this is the second one I remember in particular in this connection, his name was Ed Glennie. He and I would go out into the community, and this was of immediate help to us. We had Bible verses that we could just say as we would go door to door and we would tell people of the Lord Jesus. And so when you're explaining the gospel to somebody at work or at school, often you don't have a Bible with you, do you? And so you're left by what you can remember by heart. And God imparts faith to sinners through the word. And we need to give people the word, therefore, the words of the gospel. So I urge you to memorize some key Bible texts that contain the gospel so that you can tell others the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And in his exposition of this passage, Richard Phillips, he relates this. A church member once called to ask whether I would meet with his brother, who was a long-distance truck driver about to take off for several weeks on the road. And the man had only a few minutes to meet before his work called him away. So after a brief conversation, I handed him a Bible. I said, if you really want to know what God says about the way to eternal life, 
Read this book. Believe what it says and ask God to open your heart in faith. I was not astonished, therefore, although I was very glad, when a few weeks later I learned that he had come to believe in Jesus and was saved simply through reading the word of God. I'm speaking to a number of you, and it's a delight to see little children in this room of different ages. We love children. I love every one of you children. And you parents have been given a sacred trust. If you want your children, people, to come to know the Lord Jesus, you need to bring them to the place where the Bible is preached. You need to be faithful in that. And you need to set regular aside regular times with your children where you read the Bible and explain what it says to them. And likewise, if you want to grow yourself in faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You need to read the Bible as well, often, every day, hopefully. And you will be faithful also in coming to that place where the word of God is preached. And so faith comes by means of the word. And the second lesson we learn here about faith is that faith rests on the promises of God, a particular portions of the, of the word. James Boyce explains that when Adam named his wife Eve, mother, she not even being pregnant, it was an act of faith by which he testified to his belief that God would keep his promise and that the deliverer would come. Now, a classic example is given of Abraham. He left his home to go out to a place he had no idea what was there. He didn't even know how to get there. But the Bible says that he, he went, God says, I'll show you the way. And so he just went out, simply on the, on the basis of the, of the promise. And so Romans 4 tells us that he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. His faith was in the promise, you see, of God. He believed in God's promise because he knew of God's power. You and I, you see, we can't keep all our promises because we promise sometimes the things that we end up can't, we're not able to do. We can't fulfill them. Not so with God. Now, since faith rests on the promises of God, you and I need to know what he promised. We need to know the promises of God. And again, there are many verses, therefore, that, that, are, that are good to memorize, that help us to, to, to help us in life. It's helpful to read the, the book of Proverbs and memorize different Proverbs to give us wisdom, especially about er, problem areas of sin in our hearts and our lives. So we memorize verses like that. But among all the portions of the Bible that we should memorize and cherish are the promises of God. And they are absolutely critical when we are in times of great trial. Times especially even when we are depressed and cast down and discouraged because of the things that are going against us in our lives. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian and hopeful, hopeful, they're cast into the dungeon of giant despair. How do they get out of there? It was the key of promise by which they are delivered from their despair. It's the key of promise by which you and I, too, are delivered from discouragement and from despair. So the second lesson of faith is that faith rests on the promises of God. And then the third lesson that we learn from his faith 
is that faith centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. His faith centered on the coming seed of the woman who was going to undo all that Satan and all that the first sinners had done. And likewise, of the many truths that preachers should preach, of the many gems that believers should believe, none are more central, you see, than those passages, those verses in which Jesus Christ and him crucified are front and center of those passages and those verses. Adam's faith fixates itself on the name Eve, life giver, because through her the Redeemer was going to be born, was going to give us life. And John stressed this same Christ-centered focus of faith when he stated his purpose for writing his great gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20 and verse 31. There should be great, Satan, great certainty in, in, in our faith about who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. We should have great certainty, you see, about his saving work, that he came to, 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 to deliver us from Satan and from the soul-destroying sins, that, and he came to deliver us and give us eternal life. And so faith centers on the personal work of Jesus Christ. Now, having considered Adam's faith, we come now in the second place to God's provision. In verse 21, we read this. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. This was God's provision. Now, these words are set in direct contrast with the words of verse 7 that describe the immediate results of Adam and Eve's sin. We read in verse 7, what do we read? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now on a lower level, they now needed more adequate clothing than they had in the Garden of Eden, which was perfect temperature, perfect everything. They're now going to be driven out into a very unfriendly environment, a hostile world. And so on a human lower level, God's provision for a more substantial covering prior to their expulsion from the Garden, this itself was an act of grace. Now perhaps some of you know about a show on the Discovery Channel called Naked and Afraid. And I don't mention this necessarily as a recommendation. It's not as risque as the name sounds, and it's storyline. It, uh, it's basically G-rated, and it fuzzes out anything that uh, would be inappropriate to see. But it's a survivalist show. And the contestants are sent out to live for three weeks, usually something like that, in the wild, very hostile environment, whether it's a desert or, or a very hot place in Africa, or maybe some jungle down in some tropical area where they're going to get beaten, eaten up with insects and snakes and the like. And so they go out into hostile places, and they're given a couple tools to help them make a crude shelter and, and cook food if they can find it. But one of the harshest aspects of this survival is the fact that they don't have anything to protect them from sunburn and from insects 
They're covered with insect bites often. They're not have protection from nighttime cold. And so there's one of the harshest aspects of that is this, and it reminds us of the practical kindness of God in providing garments for Adam and Eve as they were driven out into the wild. But is this the chief significance of this passage, that God was just kind to give them something to help them out as they would face a cursed world? Well, we may be assured, I think, that this is not the case, that this is all that God meant here. After they sinned, they were truly naked and afraid in another sense. Verse 7 tells us that their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked, fearing the consequences of their sin. Therefore, they tried to cover themselves with some flimsy coverings and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And when God called out to Adam, Adam explained his conduct. He said, well, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Previously, he had no fear of God's presence. He wasn't worried about God seeing him the way he was. He wasn't afraid, even though he was naked. So why is he afraid now? Well, clearly it's on account of his sin. And immediately after his wife and he had sinned, their consciences told them of their sin. They needed a covering, therefore. And it wasn't first and foremost to protect them from sunburns or insects, but to cover their sin. And in God's presence, their paltry and desperate efforts to cover themselves, it did nothing to hide them from God's displeasure. For them to continue in God's presence without being consumed, therefore, they needed a better covering, a covering that only God could provide. Now, with respect to this covering, I want you to notice with me, first of all, the provision itself. Now we're told in verse 21 that God made for them tunics of skin. Now the skin of animals, it could only come from animals that have been slain, that have been killed. Animals had to bleed and die for these coverings to be made. And the Hebrew word that's translated tunics, it refers to robe-like garment that would be worn next to one's skin. The skin of animals covered their skin. Now, as we've already seen, Adam learned that a savior would be born through the woman. And God then gave a vivid picture of what the savior would provide. Jesus would be a substitute who would pay the penalty of our sins. He would suffer death on our behalf, as these animals had done. They had suffered a bloody death. And all of this bloody death was that there might be a covering provided for Adam and Eve. Now, in your mind's eye, Try to take yourself back to that moment. The sinful couple is just trembling, shaking in fear. They hear God's voice. And they remember that death was the threatened punishment for disobedience. And yet wonder of wonders, physical death didn't fall on them right away. And yet, instead of falling, although they began to experience a living death, as we said, earlier, but actual death, full death, full in every sense of the word, it first fell upon some innocent animals that were sacrificed to make a covering for them. 
And so in the most vivid manner possible, they witnessed the horrible reality of death that sin deserves. The wages of sin is death because sin is a violation of the holy will of God. And so James Boise comments, so is this what death is? They must have exclaimed as they looked down in horror at the bodies of slain animals. They'd never seen death before. Death was something they didn't know anything about. And so they see it for the first time. And so at that time, their eyes, they must have been overflowing with tears of amazement and relief as they contemplated God's grace. He had a right to take their lives immediately. But instead, the lives of animals are substituted for them. Their lives are given that they might have a covering. Now what wondrous mercy this is. Even when justice demands death, death's curse, it falls instead, first of all, on a substitute instead. Now as they thought further about what just had taken place, and as they connected what they saw in these slain animals with the promise of salvation through a coming seed, it's also possible that in some faint way they saw in these slain animals a picture of what this coming Savior was going to do for them. Now, we don't know how far they were able to put the, they went in putting these things together. We saw in our scripture reading how the disciples were so dense about Jesus' death, even though they heard it more plainly stated. So I'm not going to say they understood this in the clearest way. But we who read this account with New Testament glasses, we can see in this place a remarkable display of that which is at the very heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is penal substitutionary atonement. Now when Adam and Eve fell, they were not slow to do what they could to cover their sin by their own self-righteousness. This is what to Tozer says, God needs to save us from our remedies. They, they tried their remedies first, their aprons of fig leaves. But they failed miserably because they were just as naked in the sight of a holy judge as before, after as before they had those fig leaves. But in making these tunics of skin, God provided the only covering that was sufficient in his eyes. They were naked. It wasn't just a physical nakedness that's talking about. This is a spiritual nakedness. And he gives them something in a symbolic form that would, you see, cover them in his eyes. And the contrast is between, you see, what they did, these miserable fig leaf aprons, and what God did. Now, it's interesting. We don't read that God instructed them to take a beast and slay it and flay it and make themselves skins. He doesn't tell them to do it. Instead, the text simply says that it was God who made these tunics of skin. And we're left by, with the clear impression that God did it all himself. The Lord himself slew that beast or beasts. He flayed it. He fashioned the tunics of skin for them. And later on in scripture, it is said that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Here we are at the foundation of the world. And here in typical form, the lamb is set before them as slain. And here too, we have an adumbration, a faint a forecast of how our Savior was to die. He was not to die first and foremost at the hands of men, 
But ultimately, it was the sword of Yahweh that took his life. And he gave himself, you see, not to see as, as a victim of, of, of others, but first and foremost by the sword of the Lord, Zechariah 13, 7. And the Gospels make it plain that it was a supernatural event. He gave his life up. He, he wasn't killed by the soldiers. He gave him, yielded up his spirit. Now maybe some of you wonder whether I'm reading way too much into this passage. And I want to just show you why I see it this way. First of all, remember that death was the threatened punishment for disobedience. What we're talking about here is judicial penal atonement. Hebrews 9.22, it states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And by covering them with the skins of animals that had to bleed and die, God signified that their sins were covered and that this covering came as a result of a substitutionary death. The brilliant 19th century Scottish preacher and scholar Marcus Dodds, he draws attention to the difference between what Adam did and what God did. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life, and the same of his creatures might be that the same of his creatures might be relief. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death is familiar, but Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger. And he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as you pass by, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action nor without the expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. And from the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil, and that by no easy and chief process would the sinner be restored. We cannot rise above sin's consequences save by the intervention of God himself, by an intervention which tells us of the sorrow he suffers on our account. In keeping with the teaching of Scripture that Jesus died as our substitute before God, substitutionary victims bled and died on behalf of Adam and Eve. And Isaiah describes the substitutionary atonement in great detail. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And then another indication that there's a connection between these garments made of animals and Christ's sacrificial death is the fact that sacrificial animals were provided for priests. And the skins even of these sacrificial armor animals were provided for the priests in the book of Leviticus and Exodus. And presumably this would be for their clothing. In some places we encounter the same Hebrew word that's translated tunics here in Genesis 3.21 to refer to the tunics that were worn by the priests. But in Leviticus 7 and verse 8, we are specifically told that when a burnt offering was offered, the priest would have a skin of the animal that was offered. And back in those primitive days, they didn't just hang skins on walls and decorate things like that. They wore them. That's the reason why any skin 
would be of value to anybody. And thus the skins of sacrificial victims were part of the sacrificial system even then. But then a third indication for this interpretation is that Christ crucified is the grand theme of the Bible. You remember how after he rose from the dead, he was walking with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they were scandalized by his death. And he said to them, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and in all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, that includes Genesis, the things concerning himself. Luke 24. The grand theme of scripture is Christ crucified. And the ultimate author of scripture is God himself. And God has, there's a consistent unity throughout scripture. And the Bible progressively unfolds things. It unfolds doctrines. And it, it just gives us the basic foundations of the early chapters of Genesis. And then gradually, more and more, it fills in the color. It fills in the detail. Until the full revelation in Jesus Christ of Nazareth appears. And especially when we consider that Christ's atoning death is the great theme of the Bible. It's not far-fetched to see these early hints of what's going to be developed in, in a greater form later on. And then in the fourth place, another argument. We see how the foreshadowing of Christ as a sacrificial lamb is immediately picked up in the next chapter. In Genesis 4-2, we read that Adam and Eve's godly son Abel was a keeper of sheep. And in, the next, in verse 4, we read that he came to God bringing, quote, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And in contrast to wicked Cain's offering, what he thought would be acceptable, which God rejected, it was just his made-up offering. He didn't ask what God wanted. In contrast with that, Abel's offering, which pictured Christ, the Lamb of God, was accepted by the Lord. Now, how would have Abel known that this was something that was acceptable by the Lord without hearing something from his parents, Adam and Eve? And how would Adam and Eve have learned how to approach God through the blood of lambs unless they had learned this through God's gracious action right at the very beginning? An action that anticipated the cry of John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then furthermore, seeing in the death of animals here in this verse, seeing in them as an atonement for sin, it fits the context of Adam and Eve's need. Adam and Eve's great need was for salvation. And that salvation had to come from without. It had to be something that they couldn't do for themselves. Their remedies were no good. They needed a God, a God-performed remedy. And indeed, if the animals didn't die in their place, how would they have been permitted to live without God violating his threat that death would come as a result of their sin? And furthermore, if God didn't intend this action to symbolize the atoning sacrifice of Christ, there would have been no need for to slay these victims. He didn't need to go after these victims if that was, it was just, if he had no intention to convey this. They weren't eating animals for food at that point. That didn't happen until after the flood. There was no need for them for that purpose. And therefore, we're driven to the conclusion that these animals were slain in sacrifice and that this Substitutionary sacrifice is what provided the clothing that they needed in the presence of a holy God. And the concept of this covering is at the heart of what the New Testament calls propitiation. 
Paul writes of Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Romans 3.25. And this text and many other verses about propitiation, which is about appeasing the wrath of God against sinners. And it's a covering. The, name, the nature of the, the, of the word propitiation means a covering. The sins that are offered up in sacrifice are covered. That's what, it, what propitiation is, a covering. It's a covering that, above all things, this is what Adam and Eve needed before God and their spiritual nakedness. And I don't think, therefore, it's merely one who offers to, uh, to, to make a person feel good to offer a sacrifice, but it's sin and the sinner. This is what's covered in the presence of God. This is what they needed. And this is my great need, dear people. And this is your great need in the presence of an almighty, infinitely holy God. You and I, we need a covering. Sin evokes the holy wrath of God. But a propitiatory sacrifice, it covers the sin. And in this way, it propitiates, it appeases God. Well, much more can be said about this heading, the provision itself. And we're winding down the time that we have to preach. I'm not going to be able to elaborate at length on the, how this provision was then applied. But I want to just at least summarize it before we close. Notice with me that in Genesis 3.21, we don't read that God made these tunics and then said to Adam and Eve, well, here, try these out. What do we read? We read that he made the tunics of skin and clothed them. God put the coverings upon them. And in the same way, although it's by faith that we receive the provision of Christ's shed blood as our covering, it's God himself that clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And this is in stark contrast to the many different self-coverings that sinners choose. In Khalid Hosani's novel, The Kite Runner, Sinful Amir is told of a way to recover his lost righteousness. He's got to go back to his native Afghanistan. He's got to rescue the son of a friend that he betrayed. And the book tells of, of Amr's courageous heroism in rescuing the imperiled boy and how this righteousness then rest was restored as he adopted that youth into his own family. Through all of these hero heroic acts, he got his righteousness restored, you see. Well, these kind of books are popular because they suggest that sinners can stand righteous before God on their own merits, by their own works, with their own efforts to make restitution. And there are some people, they try to justify themselves with moral attainments. And this passes for them, you think, for, for, for substitution for their sins. But God's word, it repudiates these good works. If, there, if this is the motive behind them, to provide a covering, James Boyce, he, he, he gives us a wonderful illustration here. The board, board game Monopoly. Now maybe a family has a clever Monopoly player that always wins. It seems like he always ends up amassing all the wealth at the end of the game. And suppose that she or he takes that Monopoly money and tries to go to the local bank and deposit it in the bank. So the teller asks, well, how much money you, you want to deposit? Well, $8,327, sir. And he pushes the variously colored, piece, colored paper across the desk to the teller. Well, if the teller doesn't laugh, he might summon the police or maybe mental health authorities. We don't know exactly. But Boyce writes that in the same way, 
although good works are sufficient to make ourselves acceptable before other men and women, they are not sufficient to gain an acceptable standing before God. People try to present other coverings. Is this what you're doing? Some people offer pious rituals. They point to their baptism. They point to church membership. They try to atone for their sins maybe by giving money to the church or to some charitable organization. Maybe like Amr and the Kite Runner, they, they have some sin-absolving quest that they go on. Maybe they will devote themselves to eradicating some disease or they will volunteer for some kind of a local charity. And all of these things they do, you see, because they're attempting to cover themselves before God. And none of them can do any more than the fig leaves could do for Adam and Eve in the garden. They won't cover their sin. The only covering, dear people, that will ever cover you in the presence of the Holy God is the covering that he provides. A penalty has to be paid. The wages of sin is death. But blessed be God, he's put forward his son as an atoning sacrifice to be the substitute that can truly pay the penalty of our sins. And he did this by dying on the cross. And how is this one to be received? Well, we've, in our outlines, talked about imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. I'm not, I don't have time to get into that. But what we have here is imputed righteousness. I want to say this. It's the righteousness of Jesus that's put to our account. This is what happened. With Adam, a righteousness was put to his account that he didn't have. Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness. And I want to just bring you to ask yourself, can you see yourself standing out back then before a holy God you've just sinned you've broken the law death has been threatened upon breaking that law and yet now as you stand back there it's not just one disobedience you've had a whole lifetime of disobediences and the countless sinful thoughts the countless sinful desires and the sinful disease Deeds, they've erupted from your heart over many years. What's going to cover all of that, my friend? What's going to pay for that? What can you do to atone for your sins? There's nothing you can do that'll do any more than patch yourself up with a few fig leaves. What covering could be better than the covering that God provides? And so I entreat you to come to Jesus by faith and by faith alone. Call upon God to cover you with his shed blood, his perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Don't come with self-made coverings. It will never work. Don't come with busy hands, something you're going to do. Come with a naked bare back, ready to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's this righteousness and it's this alone that will enable you to stand before him on that last day when every sinner will give an account of what he has done. And if this and this alone is the covering in which you trust, you can sing by faith the words that we sang at the beginning of this, right before this sermon. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty, my beauty are, my glorious dress, Mid's flaming world, this is the last judgment. Mid's flaming world, in these arrayed, with joy I will lift up my head. 
Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, their glorious covering. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Holy Father, we amazed at the covering that you have provided. We deserve to be told to suffer forever, to try to do all that we can to lessen the punishment, and to do it all in futility, but you've provided a free gift through Jesus Christ our Savior, a covering that you have provided, a covering that you place upon us just as you did upon Adam and Eve. And we pray, O oh Lord, that any in this room that have not yet been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and his forgiveness and the acceptance that comes through him, by faith that they would receive him today, that they would call upon him to save them, call upon you to put that righteousness that he accomplished on the cross to their account, to cover their sins in the blood of his shed blood. And oh Lord, we do pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts that we would never stray from this wonderful gospel principle that when we as believers sin, that we would constantly go back to that blood, we would constantly go back to that covering, that propitiation by which we might have our sins covered and we might be accepted by you. Forgive us, we pray, of our sins. And do this, we pray, for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his holy and blessed name. 